0: To learn more about this, you can visit guthealingbundle.com. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. If you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you will also find many of the episodes to be valuable, including this one, where I interviewed Dr. Stephanie Gray, author of the best-selling book, Your Longevity Blueprint. During the interview, Dr. Stephanie went over the blueprint, and we spent a lot of time chatting about hormones, especially the sex hormones, although we also chatted a little bit about the adrenal hormones. As usual, make sure you listen to the post-episode chat after the outro music, as I'll expand on the impact of stress on hormones, nutrient deficiencies, whether taking hormones can cause cancer, and whether young a young woman should take bioidentical hormones. Anyway, here's the interview with Dr. Stephanie Gray.
1: Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show.
0: So I am very excited to interview Dr. Stephanie Gray, who is a functional medicine provider, and she helps men and women build sustainable and optimal health and longevity so that they can focus on what matters most to them. And she is arguably one of the Midwest's most credentialed female healthcare providers, combining many certifications and trainings. What I'll do is I'll just include all these certifications, all these credentials in the show notes. And specifically, she helps women in midlife who feel like their bodies have betrayed them step back into their bodies by restoring optimal hormone levels so they can regain their sleep, figure, mood, and feel amazing once again. And she is known for keeping hormone replacement therapy sexy, safe, and effective. Dr. Stephanie is also the Amazon best-selling author of her book, Your Longevity Blueprint, host of Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast and co-founder of Your Longevity Blueprint Nutraceuticals with their husband, Eric. And they enjoy spending time outside with their son, William. And they founded the Integrative Health and Hormone Clinic in, is it Hiawatha, Iowa? Yep. Yep. All right. Hiawatha, Iowa. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Dr.
1: Stephanie. Good morning, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here.
0: Excited to chat with you. So what I'd like you to do, if you could just give a little bit of your backstory, you know, how you became interested in learning more about functional medicine and doing what you do today.
1: Sure. So I think everyone has a story, everyone that's in our field, right? We kind of have our own personal health crisis, which I can get to, but I also feel pretty blessed. I was raised in the Midwest in Iowa, like you said, and I feel like really healthy family. We always had home cooked meals, always were engaged in physical activity, always went to the chiropractor. My parents were self-employed, so they wanted to keep us healthy because we didn't have great insurance, always had a high deductible plan, even back then. And so we were taking vitamins. My parents were like growing wheatgrass juice on the countertop. They weren't hippies, but they were way ahead of their time, I feel like. So I feel very blessed that I was just raised in a family that really valued health. I know like a lot of our neighbors, right? They had great insurance and anytime they were sick, their parents took them to the doctor, right? And they were given antibiotics. And although back then I almost envied like, oh, they have great health insurance and they can just go to the doctor when they need to. I now really appreciate the fact that my parents were helping to prevent me from ever needing to go to the doctor. So I was really raised with that mentality. But secondly, I had my own personal health crisis, which really fueled my passion for functional medicine. I was already in functional medicine when this happened, but kind of go into a bit of my story here. So One day sitting at my desk after seeing patients in the morning, my heart took off to the races. I had what was called medical tachycardia, very fast heart rate, which you probably deal with hyperthyroidism. (laughs) I did not have hyperthyroidism. I was very stressed out, but I had very fast heart rate. And I just remember in that moment, I tried to push the button on my phone to intercom my husband, who's our office manager. I was just so disoriented, so dizzy, lightheaded. I didn't know what was happening. I thought, am I having a stroke? Like, what's happening? So I walked down the hallway of my clinic and I was very pale. And long story short, my nurse found me, went to the emergency room. I was eventually sent to cardiology who referred me to Mayo Clinic. And they were told me that I could take a medication to control my heart rate. And I already knew, you know, practicing functional medicine, that taking the medication wasn't going to tell me why this was happening to me, that that was only a Band-Aid approach, that that really wouldn't get to the root cause of the problem. There are times and places for medication. And, you know, looking back, maybe I should have taken a medication at some point, because my heart rate was so fast at times. But I knew in that moment that I have tools with functional medicine. And my husband said, "Okay, it's time. You're going to have to apply all these principles that for years you've been teaching your patients to yourself. And so that's kind of when I created the longevity blueprint, because I had to really regain my health. And so I was already in functional medicine when my health crisis started. But functional medicine kind of helped me regain my health. The other piece of my personal story was I was also struggling with infertility which really makes sense, right? When my body was in a stress state with fast heart rate, I wasn't in the place where I could grow a human. And so my body, unfortunately, I had very low progesterone. We can get to talking about hormone levels, but the stress I was under at that time in my life really was robbing me of progesterone, which was really needed to achieve and maintain a pregnancy. And so I had a lot going on, but thankfully I had some tools that have really helped me again, rebuild my health.
0: All right. So with the tachycardia, then you were able to avoid the medication, which I assume was a beta blocker. Is that what they recommended?
1: Yeah, but it was really sad. I mean, I feel like I had a very thorough workup, you know, when you pay, well, having a high deductible, you pay, you know, seven to $10,000 to get this huge workup to rule out big, bad things, which I didn't have. But they said I had atrial tachycardia and it was where it was happening. They couldn't offer me an ablation at all. And so, yeah, basically medication was what they had recommended. And I just didn't feel like that was what I needed. And in hindsight, it wasn't. I really needed to change my lifestyle. And I will say gluten was a huge trigger for me. So pretty much any time I had even cross-contamination with gluten, I finally figured this out. (laughs) But I would have very fast heart rate after certain meals. And so I tested myself for celiac. And I remember when my nurse brought me the results, she kind of just handed them over to me sitting at my desk. And I looked at them and I thought... Oh crap, I'm one of those people. Like, I have to go gluten free. This was a decade ago, right? But I had been preaching to my patients the importance of removing inflammatory foods, and I was already like 80% gluten free, but I needed to be 100% gluten free, which I have been for the past decade. So that was a huge game changer for me. I also had SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and I had so much, you know, gas, bloating, and pressure. It sounds silly, but I would have palpitations and fast heart rate until I could burp and alleviate some of that pressure in that air. That wasn't something that conventional medicine was really you know, putting the pieces together for. That was something I had to figure out myself. was low on magnesium, low on progesterone, super stressed out. So once I got my minerals up, my hormones balanced, and stress is a lifelong journey. I still have some stress in my life, but once I set some healthy boundaries, all of those things together really helped to calm my body down. And yeah, I didn't need to take medication.
0: Yeah. Stress is, I think for most people, always like a work in progress, just you know, being a functional medicine practitioner myself as well. We're both aware of the impact of stress, but it's something that obviously never goes away and just always something that you got to work on. So I'm with you on that. So I talk a lot about functional medicine, but I don't know if any of my guests actually really spoke about what functional medicine is. Can you briefly maybe just For those who are not familiar with functional medicine, differentiated between functional medicine and conventional medicine.
1: Yeah, you bet. So I like to use the analogy that I share in my book to kind of explain this. And that's the fire department versus the carpenter approach. So think of conventional medicine as being more the fire department. And that's really what I sought out. I went to the emergency room when I was having the fast heart rate. So the fireman really has two tools, an ax and a hose, right? Which I consider medications and surgery. For me, at least, they weren't offering surgery. Now, for some other ailments, they would, right? Conventional medicine is great in that regard, great for acute care. But again, their tools are drugs and surgery. When we think of chronic disease management... And me trying to get to the root cause of my problem, I more needed a carpenter or a contractor that really tries to, again, rebuild the body. And so that's where functional medicine comes in. So think of functional medicine as being that contractor, that carpenter. They're gonna ask how and why illness occurs. They're gonna try to discover the root cause, the dysfunction in the body and fix it and ultimately prevent future fires, right? So you don't need the fire department. But I would say that I do think from an acute care standpoint, if you get hit by a car, if you have a heart attack, right? We do need conventional medicine. We do need the fire department. I just think the fire department isn't great when it comes to chronic conditions and preventing those.
0: All right. Well, thanks for the explanation. This relates to like the house blueprint concept as well that you talk about in your book.
1: Yeah. I think we're so, I guess, immersed in functional medicine. We just kind of, I don't want to say, and I don't want to speak for you, but we kind of just assume like people know what we do. And, it is actually rather complex. And so when I was going through my health crisis, my husband again said, you need to like make a roadmap, a blueprint, an outline as far as what all we offer to help patients, because they may just come to our clinic for fixing a gut issue or optimizing hormones, but we offer so much more. And so I thought, okay, what's like a relatable analogy for patients to really learn functional medicine. And so I created this longevity blueprint. And so I'll kind of try to describe that. So I'm comparing your home, right, and how you maintain it to your body. Because most of us know, okay, mow the lawn, keep hair out of the drains so they don't get clogged, change your furnace filters, right? There are just these innate things we do to maintain our home so our home lasts a long time. But we don't always know what to do for our body and specifically for each organ system in the body. And so... Throughout the book, I'm comparing one aspect of the home to an organ system in the body. So for instance, chapter one, which I think is most important, and you probably would agree, uh, I talk about gut health. So I'm comparing the foundation of our home right you have to have a strong foundation upon which to build your house right <laughs> um i'm comparing that to the gastrointestinal system in the body because we have to have a strong gastrointestinal system upon which to build great long lasting health and so that's just kind of one example within each chapter i'm going through all of the available complex functional medicine testing options for each organ system and i really talk about your human fingerprints being a detailed unique marker of human identity as is your test results. So your test results are going to differ from your neighbors whatnot. And those test results help your functional medicine provider personalize a plan to really rebuild your health. So I can keep going if you want me to explain kind of some of the other parallels I'm drawing with the house and the organ systems, if you want. Sure. Let's go for it. (laughs) So in chapter two, I actually didn't mention this yet, but Something else that really helped me reduce stress was getting chiropractic adjustments. And I don't know what your thoughts are on chiropractic care, but that was something that I did need to include in the book. I would feel so tight and so stressed and I'd be having fast heart rate and I'd get adjusted and it would just, everything would kind of lessen. And so I wanted to include the importance of maintaining, right, the framework of the home, AKA the spine, right, our musculoskeletal system in the body. And so that's chapter two. Chapter three is all about the electrical work in the home, and I'm comparing that to genetics in the body, right? Some lights you want turned on, some lights you want turned off. There are certain genes that we want expressed and other genes we really don't want expressed. Chapter four is all about having the correct keys to unlock certain doorways in the home. and this is a stretch, but I was kind of comparing that to having the proper nutrients in the body. So really just repleting nutritional deficiencies because you want that correct key to fit that lock to open, we'll just say the doorway or to bind to a receptor or whatnot. You want to have the certain cofactors for enzymatic reactions in the body. And then chapter five, I'm comparing the importance of tackling the laundry, right? We have a constant influx of dirty clothes, needing washed and dried and folded and put away, right? That's an ongoing problem. (laughs) least in my house. So I'm comparing that to the detoxification systems in the body, right? You want your liver and your gallbladder, even in your bladder, right? (laughs) Working appropriately so you can eliminate toxins. Chapter six is my favorite, and maybe we can spend some time here, but I'm comparing the heating and the cooling system of the home to the endocrine system in the body, right? Optimizing your hormones. And then in chapter seven, I'm comparing the plumbing system in the home because you want clog-free plumbing, right? To cardiovascular disease, that cardiovascular system in the body, Chapter eight, I'm comparing the importance of having good roof integrity, aka kind of treating and strengthening the immune system, right? You don't want to have chronic infections. Really want to make sure you have that protective barrier, right? Your immune system in the home or the roof in the house. And then in chapter nine, I'm just encouraging patients find a contractor, aka a functional medicine provider, to help them work through all of this. Because again, it is complex. It's not easy and you do need to run some advanced tests and be able to interpret those results as well.
0: All right. Those are some pretty neat analogies. Thank you for sharing that. And definitely want to get more into the hormones. But before doing that, you mentioned as far as my thoughts on chiropractic, being that my background is a chiropractor. Oh,
1: I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Definitely in favor of regular chiropractic adjustments. I'm a little bit overdue. I'll admit I'm a little bit overdue for my wellness adjustment, but I do try to go in regularly. So yeah, definitely advocate. I don't really practice chiropractic like I did years ago. It's more functional medicine, as you know, focusing on helping people with thyroid, what autoimmune thyroid conditions. But still, I definitely recommend chiropractic. Yeah, so can't say enough about chiropractic. But let's talk about hormones and where they fit into this analogy, because I really want to dive a little bit deeper into the hormones.
1: So again, here I'm discussing how important kind of the heating and cooling system is in your home and comparing that to really the function of your thyroid and your ovaries or testes, adrenals, right? All of those organs that help produce hormones because you don't want to have cold intolerance. You don't want your fingers and toes to be cold. You don't want to be having hot flashes and night sweats either. You want to have kind of a favorable body temperature, right? And so in this chapter, I'm really discussing ways for patients who are younger to help produce hormones naturally, and we can certainly go there, but I also talk about ways to replace hormones. So I do have a heavy natural hormone replacement therapy practice. I've had lots of patients who've had hysterectomies who need replacement, and so here I'm dispelling a lot of myths, right, that like hormones aren't safe, that they cause cancer, that women don't need testosterone, kind of dispelling a lot of myths. So we can kind of dive into as much as you would like. And then lastly, I also discussed the importance of optimizing estrogen metabolism. That's what my doctorate focused on, really looking at urine hormone metabolism testing to help reduce risk for estrogen-related cancers.
0: All right. Yeah, we'll definitely talk more about the estrogen metabolism. So hormone replacements, it sounds like you recommend hormone replacements to a lot of women, especially if they have a hysterectomy, but maybe... Younger women, not as much. Is that correct or?
1: Yeah. So it really depends. Like back to my story, it sadly, I mean, I was in my twenties when I first started checking my hormones and was struggling with infertility. I had my son at 35, a little later in the game, but it took me years. I was on progesterone. I actually had to take progesterone injections through my pregnancy because my levels were so low. Not that everybody's as low as me, but I think I see, and maybe you do in your practice as well, a lot of high performers. I mean, they are just driven individuals, entrepreneurs, busybodies, Type A, <laughs> have higher stress. And unfortunately, I think when they're not supporting their bodies with nutrition and detoxification, and whatnot, they can end up with lower sex hormone levels earlier in life. So, progesterone is the first hormone I do start replacing. And many times I do have to replace that for women in their 20s. So, it's not just a hormone that I wait till someone's, you know, 50 to replace. If they're having PMS, heavy periods, anxiety, premenstrual headaches, infertility, right? They may need progesterone much earlier in life, but that's really determined based on a combination of symptoms and then also testing to confirm that they are low.
0: Okay. So testing, that was my next question. Like how does someone know if they have a hormone imbalance and like testing that you do? So it sounds like you don't just randomly recommend bioidentical hormones. You do test your patients.
1: No, no. I think I love testing. I don't know about you, but I love testing because I have seen so many patients, even menopausal patients, go see their gynecologist. They're having hot flashes. They're put on estrogen without having any hormone test run when they never needed estrogen in the first place, right? They come to me, I test their levels, they're sky high. Maybe they needed progesterone or testosterone and they never even needed estrogen. So that is a big peeve of mine is when providers are kind of willy-nilly prescribing hormones without comprehensive testing. So- There are various ways to test hormones. There's saliva, blood, and urine testing. There's blood spot testing as well. I don't do a ton of that, but depending on the age of the patient, their cyclical status, the symptoms they have, that kind of helps me determine what is the best means of testing their hormones. So Sometimes for younger women, I will do a month-long saliva hormone test where they will spit into a tube every couple of days the full month. So we can gauge, right, if they're having a, a symptom, maybe a headache with ovulation day 14 or maybe day 26, they're having a headache, we can correlate symptoms with labs when we can see both together. So I do like a um, month-long saliva hormone test for those sort of patients. For patients who aren't cycling, we really don't need to do a full month-long test because their levels are pretty stable. <laughs> so for perimenopausal patients who maybe are cycling every 2-3 months or menopausal patients I'll just do blood testing on them. I will say you can still do blood testing on cycling women but you need to test them a week after ovulation. You know that's when progesterone specifically is going to peak a week after ovulation. So I will try to, if patients don't want to do saliva testing, I'll try to um, have them target that window to do the blood testing. But again, for postmenopausal women, I just test them any day. It doesn't really matter. And we'll test their estrogens, progesterone, testosterone, sometimes DHEA, pregnenolone, a full thyroid panel, which we can, I'm sure you talk a lot about on your show. And then many times we'll test cortisol as well. Cortisol I can do in saliva or we can do cortisol in urine testing so that kind of leads me to the next form of testing we can run on patients, which is the Dutch test, dried urine, comprehensive hormone test. So that we also just test one day, but that specific day, we can run cortisol multiple times throughout the day Is cortisol is supposed to be high in the morning. So patients are full of energy. It's supposed to gently reduce throughout the day, being lowest at night so they can sleep. So we can kind of see their circadian rhythm, which many times is disrupted in the perimenopausal stage. And we can also see their hormone levels plus we can see hormone metabolites. So we can see how they're eliminating estrogen, which is really important, especially if I'm going to be prescribing them estrogen. So that's kind of, I guess, I think your question was, how does someone know if they have hormone imbalances? A, we test them. And then B, I have them fill out a symptom questionnaire. So Many patients who have low estrogen have vaginal dryness, hot flashes, night sweats, urinary incontinence, memory fog. And if they have low progesterone, I kind of already alluded to this, they may have PMS, anxiety, heavy cycles, poor sleep. And if they have low testosterone, which I'm seeing a lot of that these days, they may have poor mood, motivation, drive, libido, energy, muscle mass. And then many patients can have poor bone mineral density with any of the hormones being low. So we kind of combine symptoms with labs to then determine what's the best course of action for this patient. Do we want to try to boost hormones naturally and use supplements and herbs, whatnot? Are they at a point where they're really not producing anything and maybe they've had a hysterectomy and they just need hormone replacement therapy? If so, we can go there as well.
0: So a few questions. One, when looking at cortisol, it sounds like you lean more towards the Dutch test, dried urine testing for looking at adrenals when compared to saliva testing.
1: I mean, I do both. It's just more convenient for the patient when they're already doing, like, let's say I want to test their sex hormones. If we're going to do a Dutch test, to be clear, you can do the Dutch test with or without the cortisol. I think it's an extra hundred bucks to do it with cortisol. So for many people, it's just convenient to add that portion on. If we're not running sex hormones, let's say they come to me and we're really focusing more on like thyroid or gut health or other things. We're not doing urine hormone testing, then I'll do saliva cortisol testing. So it kind of just depends on like what all I'm running for that patient to decide what's the best combination of tests and how do we make it the most cost effective for the patient, too.
0: Yeah, I take a similar approach. So when I dealt with Graves, I did saliva testing, and this was back in 2008. So I wasn't even familiar. I don't even know if the Dutch tests existed back so in 2008. It, I don't
1: think it did. Not through that company. Yeah
0: you know, so I did saliva testing for adrenals. And these days, similar to you, if I'm just going to focus on adrenals, usually I'll just have someone do a saliva test, where if we're doing the hormones and you know looking at the hormone metabolites, I'll usually recommend the Dutch test. So I think we're similar there. But another question I had is, in the past, I would do the cycling hormone test through the saliva, but then the Dutch test also offers cycle, cycle mapping. I don't know why. I guess I just got away from doing the saliva test. And now if I recommend a cycling hormone panel, it's more the Dutch test than the saliva. So I don't know if you use that.
1: I failed to mention that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's so many testing options these days. Yeah. I offer that to patients too. And I feel like it's really based on patient preference. Like some people just don't want to dip their urine. I don't know. Some people think it's easy and convenient to do the, you know, urine dipped test. Others like doing the saliva test. It comes down to cost too, because the saliva test for some people ends up being cheaper if their insurance, we won't go off and do a big tangent, but you know, if you do it through Genova and they get a little bit of coverage, it might be cheaper than if they do it through precision as with the urine. So I try to explain all the options to the patients, but I think both can be accurate and can be very clinically useful.
0: And then I'm glad you mentioned for the blood test because some people, even if they're cycling, it might be cost prohibitive for them to do So they would do the blood test like one week after ovulation, correct?
1: Yep. Which is easy in a 28-day cycle, right? So I have patients go to the lab one of days 19, 20, or 21. But if their cycle is 35 days or 21 days, right, then it becomes a little more difficult kind of to determine when the best testing window is for that patient. So I always ask if they have any ovulation symptoms, any kind of twitching, cramping. Some patients, again, get headaches with ovulation, cervical mucus changes. If they're having any of that, I make sure we do labs after symptoms suggestive of ovulation. We don't want to test before. If someone's having a really short cycle, like 21 days, we may need to test them early, very early, based on that. They may be ovulating day seven or 10 or something like that. So that becomes a little trickier, but that's where you need a functional medicine provider to help you know when to test in those situations.
0: And when testing in the blood, can I ask what you test for? Obviously, progesterone, is it just estradiol or do you test for estradiol and estrone and estriol?
1: Yeah, yeah, good question. Another one of my pet peeves is when providers don't look at estrone because we know in the postmenopausal phase, estrone is way more dominant than estradiol. So many times estradiol will look normal, but estrone could be very high. And so I have seen a lot of patients kind of get mistreated with their provider thinking, oh, you have low estrogen levels, let's give you estrogen, when they really weren't low their estrone was high, but that was just never detected. So I think I learned that the hard way a long time ago. And so I just do test estrone in men and women, men and women. I test estradiol and estrone pretty much every single time I'm doing blood work because if I'm giving men and women, if I'm giving them testosterone, I also want to make sure that's not aromatizing or converting over to their estrogens. And some patients convert over to estradiol. Some we see it in estrone. So I do think it's important to test both.
0: Do you ever test for total estrogens?
1: I don't. Sometimes, even though I don't order it, it comes back like that, you know, from the lab, like they just give me total estrogens. But I don't know clinically, maybe we should have this discussion, you know, another time. I don't know clinically how to use that because I do want to know what portion of that is estradiol versus estrone. But you can give me your opinion on that, too.
0: I mean, it's a good point because when I test for sex hormones in the blood, I'll commonly test for estradiol and I'll do total estrogens. And if it's high, like if estradiol is looking okay and total estrogens are high. I mean, I guess it could be either estriol or estrone, but a lot of times I'll assume it's the estrone, but I guess you don't really know unless if you test for estrone. And
1: but it's better to I would say you're still doing what's better. You're testing for all of the estrogens versus just estradiol, right? That's when I think providers miss things when they're just testing that portion. So I guess it's a good thing to test for total estrogens. We just don't know the breakdown in that.
0: Yeah. Hey, this
1: is Dr. Eric.
0: And if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and you can find both of these on Amazon, as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you can visit the website workwithdreric.com, just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. Do you look at FSH, LH, and everybody, or just like postmenopause?
1: I mean, in younger women, yes, and men also. Just totally depends on why they're coming to see me, if it's fertility related or not. Postmenopausally in women, I really like testing an FSH. Because again, that's follicle stimulating hormone. That's telling us kind of how unhappy the brain is with circulating estrogen. So sometimes I like to explain that to patients when their FSH is very high, like over 100, their body's screaming for estrogen. They need it. They want it. And so that's just another confirming marker that we need to do something to boost estrogen or give them estrogen replacement. So I do test those often. I will say I don't test them in every single situation though.
0: Okay. Why are hormones important to the aging process and how do they help at longevity?
1: So I've already mentioned today symptoms that hormones can help with, right? Hot flashes and PMS and low libido and whatnot. But at the end of the day, hormones are extremely important from an aging standpoint. So even if you're listening and you have zero symptoms, you feel great. You have none of the symptoms I've mentioned today. Hormones will still help you preserve your memory, your bone health, your heart health, So when we think of the top leading causes of death, right? Heart disease, which can be the silent killer and falls. I mean, hormones will really help reduce chances of having cardiovascular events. When we think of estrogen helping with vaginal dryness, it helps with the elasticity of the tissues, right? But not just in that region, it helps with cardiovascular elasticity, right? So to prevent stiffness and what narrowing, whatnot. So you even have estrogen receptors in your eyes, you have estrogen receptors all over your body. So as you age to not get wrinkles and to look good and feel good, I really do think estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and thyroid and cortisol are extremely important. So i can going keep expanding, but hopefully the heart, the bones, and the brain, everybody should want to keep their memory as they age. Hopefully those benefits are were strongly conveyed there.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like synthetic versus natural hormones? Because there definitely is a difference. And I assume you, most of the time, you're recommending bioidentical hormones?
1: Absolutely. Yep. So in, in my book, which I have... Kind of back here, at your longevity blueprint. I actually put in pictures, diagrams of the molecular structures of synthetic testosterone versus natural and synthetic progestins versus natural progesterone. So when you think of synthetic hormones, they have to be kind of tweaked in a lab, right? They're man made because they're a profitable drug, <laughs> a little different than a hormone that's more bioidentical to what your body's making, right? Which those are usually plant based. Those are also slightly tweaked in the lab. I mean, so they're basically turning a yam, whatnot, right, into a hormone structure that is biologically identical to what your body's already making, meaning taking natural progesterone should fit like a key fitting in a keyhole. That progesterone should fit into your progesterone receptor. Exactly. Synthetic progestins have a totally different molecular structure, and they're going to bind partially, but they're not going to bind fully as well as that natural progesterone would into your hormone receptor. Synthetics are harder for the body to detoxify. They come with greater risks. They were what was used in the Women's Health Initiative study that scared everyone away from using hormones. And then the number one most prescribed drug the next year was Prozac because all these women were left with many symptoms that hormones could have helped. But rather than find safer options of the hormones, we just started prescribing antidepressants to these poor ladies. So I do think hormones can be used safely and appropriately. We just need to absolutely be looking at labs, be looking at symptoms, using only bioidentical hormones and given in the safest route of administration as possible for that patient.
0: And do you use any natural agents like chase tree to help with progesterone or maca roots or anything else?
1: Yeah. So maybe I'll expand on, I think what you're asking, like if I use natural agents before we get to hormone replacement therapy to boost hormones. And yeah, absolutely. And I personally took a blend of, it was called progestomen from Douglas Labs, a blend of progesterone-boosting herbs for my health starting you know, years ago before I actually went on progesterone. But I actually wanna go back, if that's okay, and also say before I even get to those things <laughs> for the younger population, I also really talk to them about three things. Reducing stress, kind of back to how we opened the podcast, right? Stress is your body's biggest hormone hijacker. There's no pill, potion, or powder that's gonna replace kind of lifestyle changes, so even for me, I had to say no to some things. I had to back off. I had to get into yoga and deep breathing and whatnot, right? So one of the best things you can do to optimize hormones is reduce stress. Uh, second thing would be really work to detoxify the body. So I used to go to Bath and Body Works and get all these you know, toxic lip glosses and lotions. And I had all these chemical hair straighteners. I was essentially self-inflicting myself with all these endocrine-disrupting chemicals that were creating more of an estrogen dominance that led to endometriosis and some infertility. And so I wish I would have known back then to avoid fragrances and, you know, avoid a lot of these parabens. And I didn't know. And so you can only move forward, can't go back. But I would really encourage listeners, you know, the second thing they can do is really work to eliminate just environmental toxins and maybe do a liver cleanse, something like that to help as well. And then thirdly, really work to fix nutritional deficiencies. So magnesium, for instance, I think everybody needs. It's important for thyroid hormone production. It's important for sex hormone production. It was certainly something I was really low in. So that's just one example, you know, of a supplement, a nutrient that can help to boost hormones, but there are several others. So for many of my patients I'm running, you probably are as well, nutritional analyses to kind of see what vitamins, minerals, amino acids, antioxidants, omegas they need, because let's saturate the body with the nutrition they need first, and then retest hormone levels. And then if still, after reducing stress, detoxing the body, fixing nutritional deficiencies, they're still not where we need them to be, then I will pull out their herbs. So yes, I'll use herbs to boost estrogen if we need to, boost progesterone if we need to, boost testosterone if we need to, or lower testosterone. So for patients with PCOS, sometimes we need to lower the androgens. So I do use herbs after I get through kind of those first three steps.
0: Well, typically what do you use to lower the androgens like saw palmetto or
1: yeah. Saw palmetto is excellent. So saw palmetto specifically will block testosterone's conversion to DHT. It's a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor or walker. So we have different combination of those herbs, but even men will use those as well. So pumpkin, pygium, horsetail, stinging nettles, saw palmetto, just those are the ones off the top of my head I'm thinking, but we have a blend and various products that we'll use for patients when needed.
0: And then with testing for nutrients such as magnesium, and you mentioned omegas, I don't know what testing you use, but I know you mentioned earlier Genova. So I'm just curious, do you use like the NutraVal or you use some other test or just blood testing to look at?
1: I am privy to Genova's test just because I think I'll use Great Plains for oat testing. We use probably 50 different lab accounts here at our clinic, but I'm privy to Genova because I really like how they present their results also, right? It's kind of color coordinated where you have high needs and low needs. It's very user and patient friendly. So I do like that test. That also doesn't just look at nutrient needs. It'll also give me a glimpse into gut health because it has some bacteria and yeast markers on there. It has some oxalates on there. it has some toxin markers, basic heavy metal screening. So it's a really comprehensive kind of, I don't know <laughs> glance at one's health and then that can help direct us you know which path we next need to go down. Do we need to focus on gut health? Do we need to focus on detoxification? I think it's a great test. I think everybody should have that test run.
0: And then depending on the answers that the test gives, so you mentioned gut health, do you ever run a comprehensive stool panel, maybe look at beta-glucuronidase and you know other markers of dysbiosis?
1: Absolutely. Yep. So many of my patients also, which you are probably running as well, were doing food sensitivity testing on, kind of back to chapter one of my book, Gut Health, right? In that chapter, I discuss literally what you just said. So a stool test and then food sensitivity testing, maybe SIBO testing, whatnot because a lot of these patients will have gut infections and infection is a stress on the body. And I said earlier, stress will rob you of hormones, not just psychological stress, but even stress from things like infection. So yeah, I absolutely run stool tests. I usually start with food testing because let's face it, most patients have GI issues as well. And so if the food testing and you're changing the diet improve symptoms. We may not need to dig deeper, but sometimes we do. And the stool test is usually the next next step there for sure.
0: Well, just a quick question with food sensitivity testing. Do you use IgG or MRT? or?
1: I like IgG. I'm privy to that. I feel like there are different opinions and I think everyone kind of finds what's clinically most useful for them. But I have found IgG I think it varies per lab because some labs I think have more reliable, like their test is more like repeatable, but I do like IgG testing and IgA. Sometimes I'll do IgA and IgE too.
0: All right. So getting back to the hormones, I don't think you mentioned as far as type of hormones, like do you recommend like, for example, progesterone cream or progesterone pellets or...
1: Yeah, we offer everything here. So, when I started practice, I started with what I felt was the safest the topicals, right? That kind of transdermal application. And I do think for patients who are very sensitive, who have mild symptoms, topicals are great. A couple years into practice, I kind of found out that "Mm, a lot of these patients are having kind of a dermal fatigue where they get this receptor resistance. They're applying the cream to the same place over and over and over, and they just quit working. And so I needed to then learn other ways to replace hormones. So then I really learned sublingual dosing. So I do prescribe a lot of compounded sublingual hormones, kind of like just putting B12 under your tongue. We can also compound hormones under the tongue. I do prescribe oral progesterone. I like oral progesterone because we can compound a sustained release version to release throughout the night, keeping patients asleep, which sublingual can't be compounded as a sustained release version. That needs to be in, in the capsule, right? That delayed release capsule. So I do prescribe oral progesterone. And then... We do a lot of pellet procedures, absolutely. So progesterone has not kind of been invented in that pellet form yet, but the pellets are more for estrogen and testosterone. So estradiol and testosterone for men only testosterone, but women will need many times need the estrogen as well. So I kind of just found throughout the last over decade of practice that a lot of patients who are very symptomatic, or let's say they come to me and they're not symptomatic, but they need to build bones. Hormone pellets are the quickest, best way to do that using topical hormones can help a little bit. Oral home hormones can help a little bit more. I know there are patches as well. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say oral and patch replacement therapy, you know, helps 1 to 3% as far as improving bone mineral density. Pellets can help up to like 8%. So pellets in the literature really outperform any other form of hormone replacement therapy, which is really cool because I've seen patients come in with osteoporosis and a couple years later have normal bone density, which is Amazing. I mean, there's no drug out there that is helping to build bones like natural hormone replacement therapy can. So, that is exciting for me as a clinician, but super exciting for patients as well. They get to go back to their other doctor and say, Look at this, my bones are improving. It's really exciting. So, I do think not everyone is a candidate for pellets. Those patients who are sensitive to everything, no way am I putting a pellet in them because you can't take the pellets out once they're in. But there are patients who are good fits for the pellets, So we just really have to kind of strategize what the patient, what hormones we're going to give and what form and what dose and personalize that approach for them.
0: So early, you mentioned an example, like someone has a hysterectomy, you'll recommend hormone replacement. Is that every woman like, or is it just if they have a complete hysterectomy?
1: That was just kind of one extreme example, which unfortunately I see a lot. I have a lot of patients in their 30s and 40s who have had hysterectomies, right? Because they've had heavy bleeding or fibroids or whatnot. And I will also point out, sadly, you know, knowing that they've had these surgeries, yes, we can replace hormones, we can help them. But having the surgery never got to the root cause of the problem as far as why they had the heavy bleeding in the first place. Removing the uterus doesn't get to the root cause of the problem, so we still have more work to do with those patients. So tangent there, but kind of coming back to, I still have patients who haven't had hysterectomies absolutely need hormone replacement therapy. So maybe they had a you know, very stressful decade of their life from mid-20s to mid-30s and they are burnt out. <laughs> I see men and women with extremely low testosterone. And so I still replace individuals who haven't had surgeries like hysterectomy. That was just one sad common example that I also see.
0: I'm sure there are some people listening to this who are Completely anti hormone, you know, they're just like, I don't want to take any type of hormone. I just want to do things naturally. And I keep an open mind. So, you know, like again, if stress and adrenals is the big problem in depleting the hormones, of course, I want to do things to help improve the stress handling skills. And you spoke about this, you do this too. And maybe in the meantime, the person might still need to be on progesterone, maybe not, depending on the situation. But for those who, have concerns about hormones. I mean, there are some that just maybe don't want to take it, but then others who are concerned, well, maybe it'll cause cancer, especially, you know, if you recommend estrogen. So can you talk about that and maybe alleviate any fears people have about that?
1: Common question I heavily discuss in the book, but I will say hormones don't cause cancer. Okay. If if hormones cause cancer, we'd have a bunch of 20 year olds running around with cancer because they're the ones with the high levels of sex hormones, right? Right. We would see you know, patients going through puberty, high hormone levels, getting cancer, and then 90-year-olds not getting cancer. And that's not the case, right? The opposite is true. We don't see cancers usually in the young individuals with high hormone levels. We see it in the elderly with lower hormone levels. So I do want to kind of dispel that myth. Now, some people need to be more careful with hormone use. They have significant family history of breast cancer, I'm going to be very cautious giving that patient estrogen, right? But that also comes back down to you doing the urine hormone metabolism testing, because if I can assure, okay, we have these three major estrogen metabolism pathways working in your favor, we've optimized them, that will increase my confidence, right? With the safety of me prescribing that hormone which in conventional medicine none of this is done which just totally baffles me but in those cases I'm going to be more cautious with the use of estrogen but it doesn't mean it's contraindicated because again hormones don't cause cancer I will say hormones can feed an existing cancer so if someone had you know an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer I'm absolutely not going to give them estrogen if a man had prostate cancer active aggressive prostate cancer I'm not going to give him testosterone right but hormones don't cause cancer I will say the increased risks that were shown in the women's health initiative study although that was a very poorly designed study we could talk a lot about in that study they were using synthetic oral horse urine basically so the estrogens that were used there were from horse urine and they were given orally and we think a lot of the risks with estrogen come down to <laughs> that estrogen being synthetic and taken by mouth because when the hormone's taken by mouth it has to be metabolized through the gut and the liver and that's where increased clotting factors and potentially Right, increased cancer risk could occur. So it's not the hormone itself, but if we're metabolizing it improperly, bad things can happen like fibroids and cysts and heavy bleeding and whatnot.
0: Well, let's talk more about estrogen metabolism. So what are some of the tips or nutrients? What are some of the things you do to help support estrogen metabolism?
1: Sure. So again, the only way to assess metabolism or detoxification or elimination is in the urine. So through tests, like Genova used to also offer this test, which it was available back in whenever we were talking about 2007 or 8 or whatever. But Genova currently can't offer it because they use helium as one of their analytes for androgens and there's a helium shortage, long story. So precision analytical is one of the main labs that is offering urine metabolism testing for estrogen right now. But bottom line is in that test, we can look at three pathways. So one is the two to 16 ratio, kind of looking at how high your twos are. I know this might be over the heads of listeners as compared to the 16s. If that ratio is unfavorable, the good news is there are things we can do like increase consumption of cruciferous vegetables or take a supplement called DIM. So DIM is like eight pounds of those vegetables a day without the gas. That really will improve the two to 16 ratio to reduce breast cancer risk or even just risk of fibroids and cysts and whatnot the next pathway we can look at is methylation. And many times if I see poor estrogen methylation, I assume they're kind of a poor methylator in general. Methylation is a phase two detox pathway. And so if methylation is poor, usually the easiest thing we can recommend to improve that is methylated B vitamins. Now, not everybody responds well to them or tolerates them. So sometimes we have to use other strategies, but methylated B vitamins can help there. And then lastly, the most dangerous marker on a urine hormone metabolism test is called 4-hydroxyestrone. That, if oxidized, can lead to DNA damage and then cancer. And so how do we prevent that? We give antioxidants. And this is kind of, again, what my doctorate was on, looking at all these pathways. So back then, the major antioxidants in the literature that could help that were N-acetylcysteine and resveratrol. I think N-acetylcysteine is just great in general for a lot of things. A lot of patients are taking it for, you know, immune purposes these days, but it boosts glutathione, which is the most powerful antioxidant in the body. I do think glutathione itself is very helpful protecting you against that elevated 4-hydroxyestrone. There just hasn't been a lot of studies on it, but the studies that exist are more for N-acetylcysteine. But I think bottom line, that's because N-acetylcysteine boosts glutathione. So there are things we can do if we find unfavorable estrogen metabolites to optimize them, to improve them, which is hopefully very encouraging to the listeners.
0: All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. And is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you or anything else that you want to expand on?
1: I don't think so. I would just say don't fear hormones. (laughs) Hormones can help you age well. I think a lot of patients have been burned. Maybe because of, they saw a provider who didn't quite know what they were doing. You know, if you were going to have brain surgery, you go to a brain surgeon. If you want to optimize your hormones, go to a hormone specialist. You know, Go to someone who really knows what they're doing so you don't get burned. So what they're giving you is really safe and effective.
0: Actually, one more question that came to mind is... How frequently do you retest? Like if someone's on progesterone or whatever hormone, estrogen, testosterone, you know, when's the first like follow-up and I guess how frequently is it every like month, every few months that you retest?
1: Yeah. So variable, but I'll say on average for a new patient, they come in, see me, right? We'll test hormones after the first visit. We'll bring them back to go over those hormones. We'll initiate some form of hormone replacement therapy. Let's say they know they want hormone pellets. They're going to get peak pellet labs done six weeks after their pellet insertion. So we'll kind of see exactly what range they're in six weeks after the procedure. They'll come back again. We'll go over those labs. And for many patients, if they're smooth sailing, if their labs are good, we've achieved symptom relief. We only test their hormones once a year. Once we know we're smooth sailing, right? For hormone pellets. For sublingual and topical, it's a little different because I really measure those primarily doing the Dutch test. So I'll kind of get them hopefully smooth sailing within the first two to three months, we may have to tweak the doses a bit. But again, once the Dutch test comes back favorable, if levels are optimal, then I'll test them once a year. Not everybody is just smooth sailing out of the gate. So for some of these patients, if we have to tweak their dosages, I'm not going to wait a year to retest. We'll retest it another three months, right? And then again, once we're smooth sailing, then I'll test them once annually. Or for some patients who have higher risk of breast cancer, they may want to do the Dutch test twice a year. And I'm fine with that. It's their money, right? I'll test them as often as they want. For blood testing, so if I'm just putting someone on progesterone, you know, I may test their level two or three times in the first six months to, again, make sure their dose is appropriate. But then again, once they're smooth sailing, it's usually once a year.
0: All right. Awesome. Thanks for answering that. And where can people learn more about you, Dr. Stephanie?
1: Yeah. So I have a couple different websites. So your longevity blueprint.com. You can find my book there, all of our supplements, whatnot, and my podcast, which you will also be on here shortly. And then there is a free tip sheet there on the homepage, kind of reviewing some of what we talked about today, three tips to boost your hormones naturally, breaking down their reducing stress, fixing nutritional deficiencies, and then detoxifying the body. My clinic website is IHHclinic.com for Integrative Health and Hormone Clinic. Again, we're in Iowa. And you can also find me on Instagram at Stephanie Gray, D-N-P, and Facebook. And then I also have a free ebook. It's YourLongevityBlueprint.com forward slash creating hyphen resilience. And that's a step-by-step guide to kind of what stress is and how to minimize its impact on your body and your hormones.
0: All right. And of course, I'll make sure that all of these links are in the show notes. And yeah, definitely check out Dr. Stephanie's book her podcast, these other resources. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And yeah, that was, I mean, just a lot of valuable information, especially with regards to hormones and also touching upon some other great information. And yeah, I look forward to being on your podcast as well. (laughs) But yeah, again, this was amazing. So thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie.
1: You bet. Love talking about hormones. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: That was a great conversation with Dr. Stephanie. And while it sounds like she commonly prescribes bioidentical hormones to her patients, I'm glad that she mentioned the importance of stress in the adrenals. I commonly mention how having healthy adrenals is important if you want to have healthy sex hormones, and unfortunately, a lot of doctors who prescribe bioidentical hormones ignore the adrenals, but Dr. Stephanie does pay attention to the adrenals, and like myself, she utilizes both saliva and dried urine testing. I'm also glad that she discussed the importance of nutrient deficiencies, as while we all know that nutrients are essential for optimal health, at the same time, I think many of us tend to overlook how common nutrient deficiencies really are. She uses a NutraVal from Genova Diagnostics to determine whether someone has nutrient deficiencies. And while I do like this test, I question whether it's accurate for all of the different nutrients. But as she mentions, it also looks at some other markers that can be valuable. Dr. Stephanie also briefly discussed how hormones don't cause cancer, but she also admitted that in certain situations, she would be cautious about recommending estrogen, especially someone who has a history of estrogen-dependent cancer. One thing she mentioned that surprised me was that she sometimes recommends hormone replacement in younger women, even in the absence of a hysterectomy. I definitely try to keep an open mind. And while I'm not saying that there isn't a time and place or that there never is a time and place for women in their 20s and 30s to take bioidentical hormones such as progesterone, I would of course make sure that any woman who does this also does everything she can to improve the health of her adrenals. And the same thing applies to younger men who might have testosterone prescribed. The main concern I have with bioidentical hormones is that many healthcare practitioners who prescribe hormones will recommend hormone replacement to all of their patients, and some practitioners will tell their patients to take these hormones on a permanent basis. But it doesn't sound like Dr. Stephanie takes this approach, and of course she mentioned how she does pre- and post-testing to determine if someone needs to be on hormones, and if so, the dosage they require. And I understand that some people will need to be on bioidentical hormones long-term, But I just don't think it's right when a practitioner has every patient go on hormone replacement and doesn't have a goal of eventually taking some of them off of the hormones. Again, not everyone. Some need to be on hormones permanently, especially if someone has a complete hysterectomy. Again, I can understand the woman will need to be on hormones long term. Anyway, that's all I want to rant about here. And as usual, I look forward to catching you in the next episode.